Hi, Mary. How are you doing? Yeah, really good. Thanks, Dan. The sun's shining this morning. Did you have a good weekend? I did. I did. Thank you. Yes, managed to get out for a game of tennis, which was absolutely lovely. My club has been fairly on the ball, no pun intended, with being able to get arrangements in place to reopen. So a bit of a game in there and various things in place, obviously, around distancing. Fantastic. And I'm guessing lockdown's done wonders for your serve. Yeah, sadly not. I mean, I'm a pretty low standard tennis player at the best of times, but unfortunately, yeah, things have definitely got worse over the last eight weeks. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So today on Investment Uncut, we're delighted to welcome a very special guest, and that's former pensions minister and now LCP colleague, Sir Steve Webb. Steve, welcome to the show. Hi, Dan. Hi, Mary. Hi, Steve. So, Steve, I think maybe to start with, could you just give a bit more background on who you are and what your involvement is with LCP? Yes, well, as Dan said, until 2015, I was the pensions minister. I can still just about claim to be the longest serving holder of the post, although Guy Alperman and the current minister is catching me up very quickly. And after that, I spent four years working for Royal London, very much focused on the DC side of the world, financial advice and all of that. And it's been my pleasure since February to be a partner at LCP, focusing, I guess, on three things, really. One is getting us out in the media, telling our stories, sharing the expertise of colleagues, some client-facing work, hopefully giving some insights to trustee and corporate clients and others on some of the things I've seen from government, and then engaging back to regulators and government on what we think of some of the things they're consulting on and how they could be improved. And Steve, before we get into the key part of the show, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we won't find on your CV? Well, I guess the thing to confess is having a shockingly sweet tooth. And the consequence of that is, for example, when I was being interviewed by a journalist when I was the minister, he said, just for sound, what did you have for breakfast? And when I said, cherry bakewell. <laughs> slightly startled by that. But then actually, at a later event, brought me a home-baked cherry bakewell he'd made. So that was quite nice. Oh, well, it's worth confessing for that then, isn't it? Well, indeed. So when we get back to meeting up with people in person, I have in my pocket a, a bottle of almond syrup, which I always add to my coffee because uh, most of the coffee shops don't have it. So there you go. I shall come back with a Corona Deli. You can be assured of that. <laughs> oh, nice. Great. Well, Steve, we wanted to get started by chatting a little bit about some of the insights that you might have had into government decision-making in a time of crisis. I mean, you were in post, I think, from 2010, is that right? So just after and just really in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis. What do you think are some of the key observations that you would make around how sort of government operates at a time like this? I think, well, two things. First of all, that when you look at the charts for what's going on at the moment, it makes 2008 look almost like a picnic. It is truly astonishing. At the time, it seemed anything but, but just the scale of what's happening now. But I guess the thing that struck me most, I was a new minister in 2010, never been a minister before, didn't know much how to do it, was the single message, the single focus of government was it's the economy stupid. Coming out of the global financial crash, there was worry about a double-dip recession. And that just dominated everything. So at DWP, we would have our own agenda and things we wanted to work on. But the message from the Treasury, who were absolutely dominant in government, was frankly, if you're not helping the economy, we're not interested. And I suppose in the specific area of pensions, what that meant was company pension fund deficits. And in a normal year, we might have been saying to companies, oh, you need to put more money in your pension fund. And the edict came from the Treasury, we want people investing in jobs, in business, the pension fund can wait. 
and that ended up changing the law. We ended up introducing a new requirement on the regulator, the pensions regulator, to think about the sustainable growth of the firm, not just about the pension fund. And that was just one example, really, of the way the Treasury dominates everything and the way that at a time like this, everything's subservient to getting the economy going. And is that always the case, the Treasury being the sort of dominant sort of throughout history? And, or is it more in a time of crisis that the Treasury is so dominant? I think it's obviously particularly acute at the moment. And often, for example, prime ministers have resented the power of the Treasury. So if you think about Sajid Javi resigning as, as Chancellor, partly that was because Number 10 wanted control. But prime ministers very quickly find that they're distracted by foreign affairs and they have a fraction of the, the staffing that the Treasury has. And I think decades ago, there was an attempt to set up a Department for Economic Affairs to rival the Treasury and that failed. So the Treasury, because it controls the purse strings and has somebody monitoring many somebody's monitoring every government department just dominates at the best of times, but especially at a time like this. And I suppose in some ways you could say, you know, it's not a bad thing, government being aligned around a singular sort of objective. I mean, a lot of times you might criticise government for being a bit sort of Byzantine and sort of difficult to navigate. So perhaps streamlining around one objective is actually kind of a good thing, I suppose. How would you see that? I certainly think a bit of focus and coherence makes sense. It's the switching off or switching on, depending on how you want to think about it, it's the problem. So most people will say, these are exceptional times, we have to do things differently. But at what point do you say, but other things matter? So for at the moment, the Treasury effectively has said, we want to promote the economy. So the regulator has said to pension funds, you can have three months off in certain circumstances. But what about when that turns into six and nine and 12? And at what point do the other things that always mattered start to matter again? Yeah. And I guess policies that are in place for very good reasons to restrict the activities of businesses and individuals, if you switch everything off, then the collapse of the entire system. So I guess there have to be sort of restrictions in place continued. That's right. I think the dilemma will be that obviously they they want to get the economy going again. That's absolutely understandable. But other things matter as well. In this case, the security of people's pensions and trying to strike that balance at the best of times is a challenging market at the moment. There is only one answer to that question from within government. And I think the other thing which is within government is that, I mean, a bit like the whole Brexit process, is that huge amounts of resource get switched to something, which means there isn't resource to do other stuff. So to give you an example, there is a bill going through Parliament, DWP has a pension schemes bill going through. Well, OK, eventually Parliament might have time to debate that, but it's been delayed already for months. And there is stuff in that, things like the pensions dashboard, which will be of interest to savers and investors, the idea of having a place where you can go and see all your pensions in one place, one website, well, that needs laws to be passed, but not just primary legislation. You then need a whole batch of what's called secondary legislation. Somebody has to sit down and write that. And if they're busy writing coronavirus laws and, and all that kind of stuff, the rest of the government just gets put on hold. Yeah, it's a good point, isn't it? Because in terms of the pensions and savings industry, we've sort of had a lot of stuff that's been on hold for a few years anyway, while the whole Brexit situation has worked its way through Parliament, hasn't it? So it's only recently that those things have been able to actually get going again, and now potentially on hold again, I suppose, from what you're saying. I think that's right. And one of the things that people outside government don't really realise is that there is a capacity to legislate. It's almost like a jar that you fill up with water and, and you can't fit any more water in. So if that's the capacity to write laws, you know, the experts who are able to write legislation or parliament's ability to debate it, that's a fixed amount. And if more of it's been taken up by the crisis and coming out of the crisis, there is just less capacity to do other stuff. And I guess this crisis is, as we've noted a few times on this show, really, it's very different to the last crisis, partly because of the cause of the crisis and the sort of humanitarian aspect to it. And clearly some of the government's early intervention 
has been a bit more focused on the individual people and the furloughing scheme, for example, which is significantly costing and it's to make sure that people are able to continue with their lives. I guess the stress between the sort of getting the economy going again and the we don't want another outbreak of the virus. How do you see that working within government? That's incredibly difficult. And obviously, you've got different voices. So you've got the health secretary, in what perspective he's coming from. But if you're the business secretary, you probably take a different view. And yeah, there isn't a right answer to all of this, except that if you do things too quickly and you end up with a second spike, then in a sense, you've failed on both scores. You've damaged the economy and you haven't achieved the health goal either. So you can see why they might err on the side of caution. I think the thing that I struggle with is this kind of notion of a V-shaped recovery. I'm sure we've all got our opinions on this, but it's an awful lot easier to switch stuff off and switch it back on again. And a lot of these people on furlough, sadly, I think will lose their jobs permanently and it takes an awful long time for them to find new jobs. So I think I fear that the recovery, there'll be an initial bounce back when people start travelling again and all of that. But I think the recovery after that will be very slow and painful. Yeah, that seems to be consistent with what Natalie Brain was telling us when we spoke to her a couple of episodes ago, in that early on, there was a decent number of people who were predicting a very fast V-shaped recovery. But that's become fewer and fewer people now that are doing that. I think for the reasons you say, it's becoming increasingly obvious that you don't just switch stuff off and then on again. And, and a lot of these things do unfortunately become entrenched, at least in sort of medium term. Something I'm thinking about in terms of, you probably have to make me pay a fine for saying the new normal, but I'm going to say it once is whether we're going to become a nation of sort of accidental savers. Because if we literally physically can't spend this money, obviously it's terrible for people who've got no money and have lost their jobs, but millions more will still have jobs and won't be able to live the lifestyles they lived before. And the margins at which some people currently just spend a bit more than their income and might suddenly start spending a bit less than their income, you could see a bunch of people with balances actually growing in their current account for once. And the challenge from an investment point of view is getting beyond the sort of precautionary balance in the bank account for a crisis to turn some of that into long-term savings. Yeah. I was thinking about that actually from the perspective of property prices and thinking your gut reaction is we're in a crisis, property prices will be quite shaky. And then when you actually think about the types of people that might be looking to purchase properties, actually a number of them probably are in your camp of accidental savers, Steve. So actually, potentially it doesn't sort of drop prices as you might initially expect. So yeah, it's a really interesting point. It's going to be a very involved process, isn't it? I mean, because I think the market is still just going to be incredibly thin and trying to predict market prices in a thin market is incredibly difficult. Yes. Really interesting point you make, Steve, about the accidental savers thing. I, mean, I think I saw a tweet the other week with someone making the point that for a lot of us, a lot of our discretionary spending week to week, some of it could be viewed as sort of a reward for getting through a tough week of commuting sort of thing is maybe being a little bit glib about it. There is some of that, I think, in terms of a few beers on a Friday night or a pizza takeaway, something like that, just because we feel we deserve it after after toughing it out on the trains all week. And if we're not doing that, then we're not spending that money potentially for quite a while. And there's a good question of what we're doing with it. Yeah, and whole sectors of the economy, I mean, thinking about theatre and restaurants and places where you would spend a lot of money. In, in a sense, even if you go down the off-license or go to the supermarket and get some booze, it's going to be a third of the price or a quarter of the price it would be in a central London bar. Yes. Yeah, exactly. One more question quickly on government, Steve, before we move on from that. I mean, something I've heard you speak about before, but the nature of sort of potential cross-party collaboration in a crisis. I mean, you were obviously minister in a coalition government, so I guess there was a little bit of that kind of cross-party working within the coalition, different kettle of fish now, I suppose, in terms of the government. But is there any hope for a sort of a broader cross-party way of working in a time of crisis? I almost think that we're through that. I mean, everyone's strained quite hard in the early month or two to try and be national interest first, especially when the Prime Minister was ill. 
but you can see that that is now frayed. And if you are in opposition, there is just nothing in it for you to simply say, we'll chat behind closed doors. The government's doing a frightfully decent job. And, you know, and nor should they necessarily. I think there is a way of doing this thing. I mean, somebody said the other day, they are called Her Majesty's official opposition for a reason. They are there to scrutinise and challenge and check. And government ought to be better for that, really, as long as it's not absurdly partisan or with the benefit of 2029 size. Yeah, I suppose pensions actually has been one example of an area where we have actually had cross-party collaboration before this, right? That, I suppose, is not necessarily a hugely political area all the time. I think a lot of pensions is, need not be part of political. So in designing a new state pension system, for example, I tried to make sure that we had all party support so that when the day came when I wasn't the pension minister, the next government didn't just reverse it. But I do think when it comes to tax, tax is just political. It's about the rich and the poor and this generation, the next generation. And the idea that we could just sort out pensions actually for something by good people, clever people getting together in a room and agreeing the best answer. That's why we have elections. So some bits of pensions, yes, by all means, let's have mature, long-term, stable discussion. But some bits, we just disagree because we have different values and different priorities. And I guess pensions has been in the news in the last few days in relation to the triple lock and paying for the crisis, in a sense, that actually the government spent a lot and is planning to spend more during this year at least. And where does that come from? And there's been, I've seen a number of different news articles pointing to the triple lock and saying, well, things are going to have to give. And is this one of the things that does give? Which puts, I guess, there's the pensions aspect and there's also various questions about tax as well in that bigger question about where the money comes from. That's right. And I think on the triple lock specifically, so triple lock was brought in 10 years ago. It was an attempt to sort of ratchet a very, very poor basic state pension to a more realistic level. So it's done a worthwhile job in 10 years. It just does look a bit anomalous now to say, for example, this year, we'll be looking at inflation in the year September. That's when it's measured for the following April. Well, if the Bank of England are right and inflation is low and earnings growth really negative, then the 2.5% floor in triple lock would bite and that's going to look quite expensive. So I think what the Conservatives might do, because it was in their manifesto, of course, would be to suspend it, to say, look, this was never designed for times like this. This year, we won't do two and a half, we'll do one and a half or whatever. And then next year, they'll have a dilemma again, because if wages bounce back and you see, I mean, in the Bank of England talking about 4% wage growth, I think we are talking about more. Well, you can't pay 4 5 6% pension rises if inflation is two or one. And yet the law of the land requires that. That's not the triple lock, that's the legislative requirement. So they'll have to change the law. And I think at that point, the triple lock will be gone. So I think we will end up moving to something like a double lock, and that will save some money, but only a fraction of what they need. And the more general landscape, I guess, in the future, thinking about pensions and savers in the wider context. I mean, we had, obviously, we had freedom and choice. We've had the expansion of the ISA limits up to 20,000 a year. So a couple of things in there that you might say were more pro-savers, obviously, pension tax relief being a big issue. Do you've got any views on how all of that fits together in the future in terms of paying for reaction to the crisis and the effect on savers? Well, it's certainly the case that every year, even in normal times, the Treasury is said to be looking at pension tax relief and they measure it because to your £40 billion pounds a year. Very hard to think that if they're trying to find serious extra money that they won't take a very hard look at the total amount of tax relief going to higher earners. That doesn't necessarily mean something simple like abolishing higher rate relief. That's actually quite difficult and quite complicated. But you could imagine stricter annual limits, stricter lifetime limits, all of that they'll be looking at very hard. But it's worth saying that that's only a fraction of what they probably need. And I suspect what they'll probably need to do is something like put the main rate of VAT up or something like that 
it's probably going to need to be a pretty big bowl change because just fiddling around closing loopholes and all the rest of it just does not forget the races really you seeing anyone talking about that at the moment is there any commentators who are making that point because it seems a bit under discussed doesn't it or is that just my perspective I suppose there's a presumption that because the Conservative manifesto specifically said they wouldn't raise the main rates of VAT, national insurance and income tax, that these are no-go areas. But I think there are no no-go areas anymore. I think the big dilemma is, can we just live with a national debt that's 300 billion more than we thought? In other words, we don't attempt to claw all of that back. We just say, look, it's just a bigger burden. We'll have bigger annual debt servicing bills. We're just going to live with that rather than try and sort of start paying any of that off. And I have a feeling that's the territory we'll be in, because even ignoring the mountain of debt, the deficit, all right, 300 billion or whatever this year, is not going to come down to previous levels for some time, and the economy won't be strong enough to stomach serious tax rises for a while. So we are going to add a colossal amount of the debt, and you just couldn't begin to pay all of that back off in the short term. And I guess what are the implications of that from an investor's perspective? There's potentially other areas of government spending, I guess, that could be impacted because if there's higher debt servicing, then again, potentially knock on spending cuts elsewhere. So things like, for example, the infrastructure spending that was announced feels like the day before lockdown commenced. I think it was a bit of a bigger gap than that, but it felt very close together. Presumably that sort of stuff is at risk in this potential new world where there's a bigger debt burden to service every year. But I think, first of all, they make a distinction between capital expenditure and revenue expenditure. So they'd say, with interest rates at record low levels, actually borrowing for infrastructure investment still makes economic sense. Whereas revenue spending, I think, is, so the sequence the government would go through is as follows. They first of all look at the biggest areas, and that's things like Social Security. So triple lock, we've mentioned, working age benefits, they've squeezed incredibly hard for years they just had to put 20 quid a week on the universal credit rate for all the people who are now claiming it because everybody knows it's too low. So that will be a pressure area. The health service, I mean, there's talk of public sector pay. Could they really freeze nurses' pay after what we've been through? I don't, I don't buy that. So once you can't touch public sector pay and you can't do much on welfare, that's a big slug of public spending. Then they get what tend to be called the unprotected areas. But that's things like social care and local governments. Well, I mean, that needs more, not less. I think an interesting area is defence, funnily enough, because we've got this commitment, I think it's 2% of GDP, if I remember rightly, for NATO-type commitment, but most NATO countries don't adhere to it. Well, that, you could imagine it's much easier to make the case that you delay, I'm being flippant here, but you delay the next aircraft carrier or whatever, than you squeeze nurses' pay. So I think defence might come under pressure, transport, a lot of areas that once you've ruled a whole batch of areas out, then these areas come into focus. An interesting question that I had in my mind, Steve, I, I read a good piece, changing the subject slightly, I read a good piece at the weekend, I'll link to it in the show notes, that was sort of characterising the change between the initial COVID-19 messaging and the latest messaging as between a sort of very centrally organised, top-down kind of regime into a completely kind of, we give individuals freedom, a sort of a complete individualistic messaging and the latest messaging. And the piece I was reading was trying to advocate for some sort of middle ground between those two and felt that that swing was a little bit too extreme. I mean, do you think there's any anything to that sort of argument? And where would you fall on that sort of spectrum for how the messaging could run? I do. I mean, I think the initial messaging had to be very top down. I mean, it was a strange new world. When you look back now at Boris Johnson announcing the lockdown, he said, I am instructing you. It just had to be that blunt to get the message across. I do think the swing to the make your own judgment on what makes common sense. It was too big. The messages were muddled. And I think the reason I would be somewhere in the middle is that my freedom affects your freedom. 
you can't just say, well, make your own mind up, because if I behave recklessly, that impacts upon you. So I do think, it, A, the swing was too great, and B, the place we need to end up in, speak as a small L liberal, but even I think that this has to be somewhat more paternalistic for longer. Yeah. In terms of the wider, bigger picture for investors in the future, over, I'm talking over the next decade or multiple decades, there's been a lot written about this, but the three themes that seem to come out, which do tie into a lot of what you've been saying is we could be looking at a world that's less global, more indebted and more digital. Would you have anything to add to that? And what would you think about that and what the consequences might be for investors? So I think indebtedness is an interesting one, because if I'm right about households, then household indebtedness could look very different and in fact could come down as people are less able to overconsume. But national, you know, <laughs> sovereign indebtedness obviously will, will be huge. So things could look a bit more like Japan then, arguably, than the UK in, in that sort of world, right? And that's what Japan looks like. There's been some discussion of, well, will people go on lending to governments? But I mean, if you think about the demand for gilts, I mean, think about all the DB pension schemes, well north of trillion quid to invest, who are going to have to back the pensions in payment for decades to come. So I think there'll be a huge willingness to lend to government as long as government perceived to be taking the finances seriously. And that, I think, means that interest rates won't have to rise because that's the nightmare scenario, isn't it, really? We've added massively to the national debt and then suddenly interest rates rise and that would be the catastrophic scenario. Really. Yeah. To your point about potentially a slightly more paternalistic approach, so we've got this group of people that are potentially individuals less indebted than previously or than they expected. They've got this accidental savings pot. Do you think there's more that the government should be doing to actively encourage saving in that scenario? It's a tricky one. I think I'm very, very sceptical of kind of tax incentives to encourage saving because the Treasury worldview on a lot of this is it's all dead weight. In other words, the people who take advantage of a damage of the 20,000 by submit, well, you know, your average punter hasn't got 20,000 quid. It's people who are going to save anyway, just pick the most tax efficient way of saving their 20,000 quid. And actually, there's a question as to whether that's a good use of taxpayers' money. I mean, take the lifetime ISA to help young people buy a house. Again, your average hard-pressed young renter hasn't got 4,000 a year to spare to put in an ISA. It's the children of the wealthy have got 4,000 a year to spend. So I think a lot of schemes, WISO ideas, initiatives, incentives to save, I don't buy what I do buy is sort of behavioural nudges. So auto-enrolment into pensions, being, you have to drag it back to pensions. I'm sorry. But, you know, but it worked. And funnily enough, I mean, we're, we're recording this on, on a Monday and the Institute of Fiscal Studies have just published a report saying that even young people on incredibly low income, who in their judgment really, really shouldn't be saving pension, are saving in a pension because the power of defaults is just so great. So I think behavioural nudges, and all of that is far, far more powerful than you help to save scheme or something like that. I suppose on that question, I guess it's been said many times, there is a huge advice gap in the UK. So let's say you've got a lot of these accidental savers. Let's say they're asking themselves the question, what could I do actually do with this money? A lot of them might not have quite enough to be approaching an IFA and, and going that way. And then there is a little bit of a gap really as, as to what they might actually do with it and risk it might just sort of be left in a current account earning, earning almost nothing. That's what I think will happen if we're not careful. So people will gradually, and in the short term, growing what economists would call precautionary balances, you know, just having a bit of money for a crisis or a rainy day is a great thing. And actually far too few people have had that sort of thing, that sort of buffer for when things go wrong. So in the short term, that's not a problem. But if this becomes a new way of being and people are just accidentally saving more, we've got to find ways. Now, personally, in a more normal time, I'd start nudging up mandatory auto enrollment pension contributions. That's obviously that's long-term saving. 
but that's one thing we could do. But without that, as you say, there is the advice gap, if anything, is worse than it was. Many financial advisors have had a good run of late. You know, markets have done well. Pension transfers have been available. They haven't. I used to go and talk to lots of financial advisors, and very, very few of them ever advertised because they've got a client book, they've got referrals, they've got people coming through the door. It's a very strange market, and many of them would say, "Well, unless you've got six figures, I'm not interested in talking to you." So there's this massive group of people in the middle who've got enough money to have choices and could make better or worse choices, and simply don't have access to any sort of advice. And let's talk of robo advice and so on. But at the moment. I was going to mention that you saw your money farms and your nutmegs. You do see them advertise a decent amount, so maybe they'll be in people's minds. But you do see the, the robo advisors advertising, but it intends to be fairly. I mean, crude is probably a bit rude, but it's essentially you know, here's your invest attitude to risk. Here's a pot of money. Here's a portfolio kind of thing. Whereas modern life, particularly people in their fifties, let's say, they've got much more choice. You know, pension freedoms we've talked about. There's the context of their whole household. Do they work longer? Do they lock into a regular income or manage their money through retirement? They, compared with the previous generation, have so many more decisions and choices to make and beyond ringing the government's pension wise service, they're on their own. And that's the thing, isn't it? You mentioned earlier, adding yet another scheme to encourage saving maybe isn't the right way to actually get people to take action. And that's the issue with having too much choice, isn't it? You just become sort of frozen almost because there's just so many things to think about you're convinced you've missed a good option so you don't do anything at all and then you're in a worse position yeah there's a paradox mary isn't it that you can literally have too much choice and there are systems around the world where people can invest in you know, a thousand different pension funds and of course none of them, none of them do because they just can't cope with the choice one of the interesting lessons i think that's been learned is that engaging with people for example five years before they can access their pension flexibly rather than at the point they can access it is much more effective because they haven't made their minds up. So at Royal London, we were obliged by law, if someone rang up at 55 and said, I want my money, we were obliged by law to say, oh, you're in pension-wise. And the answer very often was, well, why are you trying to stop me getting my money? The research evidence was that people by that point had made their mind up. Whereas if you contact people five years out, four years out, three years out and so on, and just warm them up to the fact that they are going to have choices, but also they can make decisions now that will affect what they're going to have in five, 10 years' time, then you've got a better chance. So I think timely engagement with people. So 50 seems to be a good point. I mean, trying to get people to think about pensions in their 40s and 30s is more challenging. 50 feels like So there's talk of what they call a midlife MOT, where you don't just review your finances, but perhaps you review career. And you're just doing one career for our entire life. The 100-year life seems reasonable at 50 to think, well, if I'm not going to do this till I'm 70, what new skills do I need? What new training do I need? So this whole kind of idea of changing the way we think, nudging people at the right time is much more the future, I think, than just, you know, another government scheme. And that probably has parallels, I think, to other institutional investors, because if you think about, for example, you've made an investment in an illiquid asset and you know when it's likely to give you your money back, actually waiting until the point when you're going to get your money back and it's all quite short space of time to make decisions and, and all that sort of thing, probably more difficult to make that decision. But actually making the decision a bit further in advance, you might decide you're redeploying into the same asset. You might decide that you're going to invest in something else, but at least you're making the decisions in more of a rational way with time which points back to some of the other discussions we've had previously, Dan, on any investment decision. If you're trying to make it in advance, when you're able to make it in a well-balanced way, rather than in the moment when everything's changing. 
Exactly. And it all comes down to having the right information to make that decision, doesn't it? And as, as Steve was talking there, I was just thinking, look, a lot of this is just coming back down to engagement and communication from the finance and investing industry to individual people, right? And let's be honest, it's not something that the industry is is great at presenting things in a sort of accessible way where people even understand what the decision is that they're being asked to make or decision they could make and have anything close to the right information available to to make that. So, I mean, are you optimistic on that front, Steve? Do you think, you think the industry can rise to the challenge or are you a little bit pessimistic on that? I do think that things like big data offer huge potential because there's plenty of evidence that generalized financial education is practically useless. You teach kids even in school, and it's slightly heretical to say this, but there's quite a bit of evidence you teach kids in some general level in school, and a year later, you can't remember any of it. But if you provide people with timely information based on something that's about to happen in their life, then they are really engaged. So if you talk to sixth formers who are about to start a job about their first payslip, and they're very interested to know what's going to be in it, what's coming out of it, whereas if you just give general information, it just bounces off people. So what big data can do is a life event happens. I contact my pension provider and tell them that I've just got married or something, to change my name or change my address. And that triggers some engagement with me that's relevant to people to whom that has just happened. And that's very, very powerful. And we're just at the beginnings of all of that. Yeah, I imagine that a lot of people, when they get a letter that's clearly from their pension provider, it feels pretty weighty. One imagines that a lot of that is probably going towards the recycling bin or the shredder pretty quickly. So I suppose it's just changing people's attitudes just so they will even read it and to be given the chance to receive the message, right? And in a world of automatic enrolment, you're probably getting six letters from six different pension companies, none of which are opening. Whereas I think something like a dashboard on an app. So A, got to be driven there. So I think my idea would be that you have your pension dashboard or something on your phone, and then you get one of these push notifications that pops up. And it says, oh, it's your birthday today. If you put money into your pension today, the government will double it or whatever. Just thinking outside the box, thinking about what drives us to things, not build it and they will come, because frankly, they won't actually trying to draw people in again nudges timely interventions all of this it seems to me is the way we need to be creative especially when so many more people will be struggling okay steve well that's a really interesting note to maybe finish the main conversation on and so then just as we're wrapping up how can our listeners find you get access to your stuff and read your thoughts well i'm far too active on twitter so i'm at steve web one i'll spend far too much time on there and also on linkedin so and i try and engage with people not just sort of broadcast stuff there's plenty of papers we're writing that appear on the LCP website, so always good to hear. Fantastic. And Steve, do you have any recommendations for the listeners, books, TV shows, podcasts, anything like that? Yeah, something a bit off topic, I suppose, is I kind of love numbers. And there's a book called The Music of the Primes by Marcus de Sotoy. And he's one of these kind of people, professor who popularises maths and numbers and so on. I read it some years ago now, and I just loved it. And it's just all about prime numbers and how many there are and theories and so on. So um you want a, a break from investment theory the, the music of the primes i can recommend wow that sounds like a real one for the geeks there right? <laughs> <Rude>. <laughs> is it the wrong time to admit i went to a marcus de Soto sort of presentation uh, which got me into doing maths at uni wow there you <laughs> so, go yeah, wow. i think i'll enjoy wow. that book <laughs> brilliant and steve finally then what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing the best investing tip that i heard recently was lose the password on your account it's simply just take the long view if you can if you're in the position to do that i was very struck i do lots of sort of readers write letters and this kind of stuff in the media and the number of just ordinary savers who were just so frightened by what's just happened and they wanted to sell out at what may be the bottom of the market because they're just terrified it could go further and just kind of being able to step back not fret not constantly check and take the long view 
easy to say if you're in a position to do that. But one of the downsides of having constant access and real-time information on what's going on is it's, it's really risk of overreacting and we've got to help people not do that. Yeah, that's an absolutely fantastic point. Top tip. Okay, Steve, that's been a brilliant discussion today. Thank you so much for your time, Steve. That's been great. My pleasure. Thanks, Steve. Cheers. That's all we have time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us next week. We've got another special episode where Book Club returns. So if you've got some time over the bank holiday, please feel free to read the book we're going to be reviewing. It's The Man Who Solved the Market by Gregory Zuckerman. And it's the story of how Jim Simons launched the quant revolution, which is a bit of a mouthful, but I promise we distill it down into some fairly simple key points next week. See you then. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.